Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. In the world of drug trafficking, cocaine is gold. When a single gram is sometimes worth $360,000, a drug smuggling operation can easily yield millions of dollars in profit. Of course, drug dealing isn't easy. Border crossings are routinely checked for drug smugglers, and international flight is highly protected. A couple of years ago, the members of an international crime ring came up with a devilishly brilliant idea. Fill tuna cans with cocaine in Ecuador, place the cans inside a container, and send the container on a ship to Belgium. Since tuna cans are completely sealed, who could ever find the concealed drugs? According to the plan, the drugs will be thrown overboard next to the Belgian shore, and there, a local team will sneak the precious cargo into the European market. Quote, I have a cargo ship with a captain on our side too. They want to throw over the load as they leave, wrote one of the conspirators in a text sent from a special clandestine smartphone. Once the pilot boat leaves, we'll send a message and they'll throw it right away. Can you do it? And if so, what's your fee? Yes, we can definitely catch it, replies a second conspirator. They charge a 20% fee. End quote. A multi-million dollar drug deal was being finalized in these texts without the use of any code words. Both parties used incriminating language. After all, they thought they were safe. The instant messaging app they were using was supposed to be the holy grail of criminal communication across the world, an end-to-end encrypted communication tool completely secure from government eavesdropping. But unbeknownst to them, someone else was listening. Something was rotten in the state of Belgium, and it wasn't the tuna fish. Vincent Ramos is a genius. Even the official website of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime called him a cyber genius. Ramos's talents are numerous and outstanding, probably matching the talents of other cyber geniuses who went on to found leading tech companies worth billions of dollars. Vincent Ramos could have had this life, the startup phase, the luxurious office spaces, and the praising Forbes profile. But Ramos chose the dark side of the cyber world. He started his own company in Canada called Phantom Secure. Phantom Secure bought BlackBerry mobile phones and then modified them to include a secret and secure communication channel that would allow two or more phones of the same model to exchange messages without outsiders peeping in. Phantom Secure had a very specific and rather unusual type of customer, criminal organizations. Drug dealers, mafia bosses, cartel operations, and hitmen all need secure means of communication. 
Phantom Secure claimed its product is much more secure than commercial messaging apps with end-to-end -end encryption such as Signal or Telegram, which according to various media reports can be hacked by law enforcement agencies using advanced technological tools. Phantom Secure quickly became legendary among criminals. Word spread about the Canadian company and its hardened mobile phones. A new genius arrived in town, criminals whispered to each other, and he was offering the holy grail of dark illegal communication. The crime world could not wait to use this new tool. The Sinaloa drug cartel of Mexico, nicknamed the Blood Alliance, was one of Phantom Secure's major clients, and these modified BlackBerry devices were also used by the notorious biker gang Hell's Angels, which used them to orchestrate several assassinations. Phantom Secure's products were used by criminals in the United States, Europe, Mexico, Canada, Australia and Thailand, and helped operations that dealt in cocaine, heroin and methamphetamines. More than 20,000 Phantom Secure devices were sold across the world, and the company generated at least tens of millions of dollars in revenue. But the real numbers might be even higher. We don't know because Ramos used several shell companies and cryptocurrency machinations to launder his company's proceeds. Still, we can be quite sure that Vincent Ramos made a lot of money, maybe even more than most tech founders. It was a good run for Ramos, but it all came crashing down on March 7, 2018, when FBI agents cornered Ramos in a breakfast restaurant in Bellingham, Washington. Other members of Phantom Secure were apprehended simultaneously. It was game over for the holy grail of criminal communications. But when it comes to crime, there is always a new bad guy around the corner. And this particular bad guy had an ambitious agenda, to build a new mobile secure phone even better than Phantom Secure's. Around the time Vincent Ramos's empire collapsed, a mysterious figure within Ramos's inner circle was working on a new idea, a more advanced version of Ramos's secure mobile phone nicknamed Anum, the Holy Grail 2.0. The new Anum devices were basically regular Google Pixel phones with most features turned off. The device's only functioning app was a calculator, but when a specific code was typed into the calculator, it turned into a messaging app, complete with end-to-end -end encryption. The encryption used in the Anum devices was based on public key cryptography, the same encryption method used in the HTTPS protocol, the secure communication protocol we all use all the time online. The idea behind public key encryption is quite simple. The most vulnerable point in network communications is when the data leaves its origin and travels across the public network to its destination. This is where hackers or state-run agencies will strike. To make sure that our messages 
are safe from prying eyes, we need them to leave our device already encrypted and that only the target device will be able to decrypt them. Public key encryption achieves this by using a pair of keys, essentially long strings of numbers and letters. As an example, say that I'm the leader of a math empire. Van, come on. You, a leader of a math empire? Have you ever even seen math before? Are you kidding me? Of course I have. Plenty of times when I was a student. Anyway, say I want to send Yotam, my henchman, a secret message asking him to bring me some of the white stuff. Are, are you serious? Dead serious. Yotam has two keys. One is a public key, which, as the name implies, is known to all, and the other is a private key that is kept on Yotam's device. My phone uses Yotam's public key to encrypt the message, which is then sent over the internet. The crucial part to know here is that the public key can only be used to encrypt a message, but not decrypt it. Hence, if someone intercepts the message before it reaches Yotam, they can't decrypt it even if they have the public key in their possession. Only Yotam, who has the private key, can open it. <sighs> okay, here it is. I got it. What? What's that? Math. Isn't this what you asked for? Math, not meth, Yotam. I asked for some chalk so I can write formulas on the blackboard. Ah, right. No problem. I'll get rid of it. No, no. Give me that. I'll, I'll take care of it. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, give, give it to me. Give it to me. Hmm. Where were you? Ah, yeah. Anam's encryption protocol made sure that all the communications passing through the network were completely encrypted. Decryption only took place on the receiving device itself, using the private key, which was never shared with anyone else. The Anam phones had several other features. For example, each phone had a kill switch, a pin code that could trigger the complete deletion of all the information stored on a device. The same deletion would also be automatically initiated if the phone was left unused for a certain period of time. This meant that even if your device was confiscated by law enforcement agents, they only had a limited time window to try and hack it. If they failed, the phone's entire content would be deleted. And if you were also arrested and asked to provide the phone's password, you could simply give the investigators the kill switch pin code and watch them destroy your phone for you. One of Anam's first customers was Hakan Ayak, an Australian drug trafficker who bought an Anam phone for himself. Ayak is an almost mythical figure in the Australian crime world. He got his start in the late 1990s and quickly built a massive drug empire. After amassing a fortune of over $1.5 billion, Ayak fled Australia, found refuge in Turkey, and underwent plastic surgeries to alter his facial features. After purchasing the new Anam phone, Ayak became a sort of a super-spreader of the new device. He recommended the devices to many other criminals and even demanded that communication with himself only be made 
through the new secure phones. Ayak was convinced this was the safest method of communication possible. He just didn't trust the alternatives. It took several months for the Anim devices to gain a following in the criminal world. By the late 2019, there were several hundred active devices, and a year and a half later, there were more than 1,200 Anim phones sold across the globe. More than 300 criminal organizations incorporated devices into their communications. According to authorities, most users of the phones were upper echelon, command and control figures in the criminal world. A single phone was sold for between $1,700 and $2,000 in the United States, with prices greatly varying between different countries. Criminals gleefully talked about the new encrypted devices capable of hiding sensitive information. In fact, many of them had such high trust in the phone that, as we saw in the opening of this episode, they didn't even use code words in the messages they were sending using the Anum software. After all, there was zero chance these messages would one day fall into the hands of law enforcement, right? The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. CyberReason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The CyberReason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit CyberReason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. Also, be sure to check out CyberReason's Black Hat booth number 1820 in Las Vegas for a chance to get an awesomely designed Malicious Life t-shirt. It was the best shadow communication tool ever built, if not for one tiny flaw. Every single message that was sent using Anum was going directly into the FBI's servers. You see, the fall of Vincent Ramos's empire exposed this new communication system to the authorities. The FBI could have had its developer arrested, but someone had a different and quite brilliant idea. The Bureau approached the developer behind Anum and offered them a deal. Give us absolute control over your system and we'll give you a reduced sentence. They even offered him or her $120,000 to finance the development of this new software. The developer agreed and Operation Trojan Shield was born, named after the fabled Trojan horse from Greek mythology, a supposed gift carrying hidden dangers inside of it. 
how was the FBI able to sabotage the public key encryption scheme used in the Anum? Well, they altered the encryption software so that each message sent from a device secretly included a master key, a piece of information that enabled law enforcement to decrypt the messages. The FBI also set up a communication interception server in a third country and used it to harvest every single message sent from these devices. Even when the phone's owner used the so-called kill switch option of the device, the FBI could still access the data it contained. Another capability the FBI reserved was harvesting GPS data. Even when the Anum devices appeared to have their GPS feature turned off, they secretly did save GPS data and sent it to the FBI. According to a later report on Vice magazine, the Anum device reported to the FBI the exact location of the phone when each message was sent. No less than 16 countries took part in the operation, with the FBI, Europol, Dutch police and Swedish police coordinating the data-gathering scheme. The authorities closely monitored every message sent using these Anum devices and took notes. Incriminating messages were marked as valuable evidence, and other information helped track and map worldwide criminal organizations. Furthermore, when users wrote to each other about how they wished they had smaller and slicker phones, the FBI actually made their wish come true and improved the Anum's design. Over a three-year period, authorities intercepted more than 27 million messages sent via Anum devices. Finally, the FBI made its move on June 8, 2021. There are contradicting reports as to the reason Operation Trojan Shield concluded. Some say that the agencies behind the operation became aware of several dangerous plots that required intervention, even if it meant exposing the whole operation. Alternatively, perhaps the wiretap authorizations that were granted to agents were over. More than 800 suspects were arrested in a coordinated strike in 16 different countries. 700 houses were searched based on incriminating evidence gathered on Anum phones. More than 2,050 weapons, 55 luxury cars, 6 tons of cocaine, 5 tons of marijuana or hashish, 2 tons of methamphetamine and $148 million were confiscated during the raids. Over 300 international criminal organizations were identified using the app, among them Italian mafia rings, biker gangs, cartel operations, and drug smuggling organizations. Jean-Philippe Lacouf, deputy executive director of Europol, said, quote, This law enforcement operation is exceptional by its global outcomes. We carried out one of the largest and most sophisticated law enforcement operations to date in the fight against encrypted criminal activities. End quote. Calvin Shivers, assistant director of the FBI's Criminal Investigative Division, also spoke on the day Operation Trojan Shield was unveiled and said, quote, the success of Operation Trojan Shield is the result of tremendous innovation, dedication, and unprecedented international collaboration. End quote. 
Europol also promised that, quote, countless spin-off operations will be carried out in the weeks to come. Among those who were apprehended in the first wave of arrests were 17 people who worked for the ANAM operation directly without knowing of the underlying hidden agenda. Some of them were distributors who marketed the devices. Their marketing slogan, ironically, was designed by criminals for criminals. There's no denying that Operation Trojan Shield was a tremendous success. The operation resulted in so many arrests and indictments that it can be considered one of the most successful coordinated moves against international crime in recent history. Furthermore, the operation also served to warn criminal organizations across the world. Trust no one. Even quote-unquote real criminal encryption tools are going to be looked at differently after this operation. Criminals now have no choice but to distrust their phones and messaging apps. After all, if even a device designed by criminals for criminals turned out to be a trap, then who can truly be trusted? But this story also raises another point, not quite as optimistic. There's little doubt that Phantom Secure wasn't the only high-tech company catering to the needs of criminals, and Vincent Ramos wasn't alone in lending his talents to the dark side. Criminals are going to get more and more advanced systems. Anum was a government-run sting operation, but the next generation of secure and encrypted phones might not be. A future where every single drug syndicate or terrorist organization can communicate among themselves in a shadowy, secure manner is a future worth fearing. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Following our two-part mini-series about Ross Arbrecht's Silk Road, I saw the following tweet by a user called Comrade Klaus, who wrote, quote, Hardly a fair interpretation of the case. I expected a more balanced perspective instead of repeating the prosecution lies that they didn't even bring up at trial. Pure drivel. The counterpoints aren't even presented until the outro. End quote. I think Klaus has a point. Not that the episodes were pure drivel, of course. That was a bit uh, impolite, let's say. But I agree that we didn't provide you with a balanced perspective on the Albrecht case. In my defense, we never aimed for a balanced perspective, because this podcast is about cybersecurity, not about law or drug policy or social justice. I was more interested in the implications of this story on issues of anonymity, cryptocurrency and such. Whether Ross Albrecht was right or wrong in doing what he did, well, I considered it out of scope for our particular podcast. But I can see where Klaus's tweet is coming from. Albrecht's punishment was so harsh, a double life sentence plus 40 years without the possibility of parole, it makes it hard, almost unreasonable, to ignore that aspect of the story. So, I won't. 
I've asked you, our listeners over on Twitter, for your opinions. Was Albrecht's harsh sentence justified? 70% of you think that no, he didn't deserve the punishment that he got. Pete from London, a fellow podcaster, wrote, quote, Whilst what he did was technically illegal, he wasn't the one selling. He was essentially just a middleman taking a cut, essentially just like what eBay does. Whatever people want to do with their free time is fine by me, and the war on drugs has cost billions for little success. End quote. User CSB says, quote, He should be punished, but instead of a fair judgment, they made an example out of him to keep others from copying him. End quote. Yongas Gulstad. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Yongas. He writes, quote, He knowingly operated an illegal marketplace, so he should be punished, but five to ten years would be fair, in my opinion. It's clear that his punishment is out of context to the crime, but the legal system is making an example of him. I don't see anyone punishing Snapchat, where dealers also sell. End quote. And lastly, David Castile adds, quote, More of the joke of a war on drugs that the federal government still is deluded into thinking it works. It's one of the many reasons I wouldn't walk across the street to help a federal agent. End quote. For the record, David, I think that this last addition is wrong. Federal agents are not our enemies. Quite the opposite. They are the good guys. You might disagree with the federal government, as many of our listeners obviously do in this case, but treating federal agents as enemies, that's going a few steps too far, like removing malware from a system by setting it on fire. That's it. A few shout-outs to people who wrote to me or said nice things about the show on social media. Will Von Sexron, a reluctant Scottish runner. I feel you, Will. Steve Pierce, good luck with your future career in InfoSec, and to two long-time listeners of the podcast, Iceman of Oz and Hello Tweety NYC. Thank you all very, very much. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was produced by Agam Kedem-Levy, with sound design by Yotam Halachmi, who you heard earlier in the episode. Hadas Drucker is our social media wizard. Our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at maliciouslife or me at, at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. CK Music. 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 Music.